0: Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by The Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles for another edition of Tabernacle Today.
1: Well, we're in Psalm 51 tonight, and as we get to Psalm 51, we're starting the last hundred of the Psalms. There's 150 of them. And so as we've gone through one week at a time, we've been through uh, a year's worth, and I just love them. And I suppose uh, Psalm 51, probably maybe in the top five most memorable Psalms because of David's prayer of confession that it is. Uh, so it's obviously uh, very, very important to the, not only Israel, but to the body of Christ. Uh, I can't tell you the number of times something in this psalm has given words to my own uh, sense of guilt before the Lord, uh, my sense of uh, wretchedness before the Lord, uh, my sense of uh, unworthiness and just turning back to Him, you know. Uh, it just, uh, what what a beautiful, beautiful, uh, along with Psalm 32, uh, the things David says there. But Psalm 51 certainly many times is a place we go uh, to um, get our hearts tuned to the Lord. The inscription in the New King James reads that it's to the chief musician, and it's a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So we know exactly what the uh, add, you know, what's happening here. David had uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had uh, been responsible for the death of her husband. Great wickednesses is in Israel. And uh, he was trying to hide it, trying to cover it all up. The cover-up led to the murder of Uriah, which the adultery was bad enough, but then the cover-up too. Um, how demoralizing for every soldier in Israel to have it come out you know, that their king and leader, uh, their fierce warrior, general, king. Uh, you know, had messed with the wives of one of their own, you know, and uh, just there's there's no justifying it, and I'm glad David doesn't use justification language here. Sometimes when we say we're sorry to people or say we're sorry to God, what do we do? We say, I'm sorry, but, and then in the but we show that we're not really sorry. Well, there's not a lot of that here. David has finally gotten the message. It took Nathan's skillful concentration uh, sometimes people need to be told a story and then say yeah you 're the villain in that story, David, the one you just called for getting thou art the man you know you 're the man that has a thousand sheep and stole a man that only had one man sheep you know and it just breaks your heart that Israel had to go through this, but we 're also mindful from Romans fifteen four that everything written in the scriptures is for our instruction it 's for our benefit, and so uh, I have a great book on my shelf called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And it's one of the Puritan classics going back to the 1600s. And in there, he says, you know, a lot, of people like to, um, a lot of people like to take comfort when they've blown it, you know, that David blew it too, but they don't like to think of how hard David repented, you know, how serious he was in his lining things back up with the Lord. So we use the one to justify, well, even King David sinned, but we don't say, yeah, David found forgiveness, I can too, but let me repent like David repented. So even in this beautiful psalm, uh, we see that David was a man after God's own heart, you know, who got his forgiveness and uh, finished well, even though this was just a sad, sad episode in his life. Okay, verse one. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. So right off the bat, he throws in, uh, he's appealing to God on the basis of God's chesed, that word that we've talked about so many times, his faithful love, his steadfast love. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Mm, generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Mm, What a a great psalm. Um, I, I couldn't think of many other ways to do this one. You know, sometimes we do headings and, you know, uh, there, it divides. into. three I, I just thought every verse is worth taking a closer look at, and so that was pretty much how we're going to do it, just go verse by verse down to the word and the testimony, as Isaiah the prophet said. But this is the classic psalm on repentance and rededication. So we're told in the heading that this is David's response after Nathan the prophet confronted David about his sin. And that incident is in 2 Samuel 11, the confrontation's in 2 Samuel 12. And if you've never camped out there for a day or two, it's worth camping out there for a day or two, seeing how our sinful hearts can lead to terrible consequences if we don't, uh, uh, if, if we let them have their impulses. And for David, that meant the sin of adultery with Bathsheba. Uh, the time kings go out to war, he did not. So he probably, uh, maybe, still should have gone out uh, to the battle. Instead, he stayed at home. He started surfing through his 300,000 channels he had on his uh, uh, TV there. Uh, people have criticized Bathsheba for bathing on the roof, but that's what they did. They had the, you know, they bathed up, up up, there instead of down lower where people could look in and see them. People couldn't see your roof. One place could, the palace, and there's a man of righteousness there. He wouldn't take advantage of the people of his kingdom, particularly where his soldiers live and stuff like that. But he did. And he called for her. She had to go. And uh, I think we've learned a lot about, uh, you know, sexual harassment and abuse. And David is totally in the power position here. I personally don't think a negative thing should be said about Bathsheba ever from a class or pulpit. Uh, You know, she, uh, in that society, did not have the kind of ability for this to be considered just a casual affair between two people. It's all on David. It really is. And uh, that's how Nathan presents it in his confrontation. Um, You know, and we've had examples, even in the Southern Baptist Convention, of pastors misusing their authority to enter into some kind of relationship with somebody, and even if the other person was consenting, they were the authority person and should have steered away from that. Same thing happens in government and in other situations and stuff like that. And um, it's always uh, an an extra sinful factor that you're misusing your authority. so anyway, she gets pregnant, and you uh, will remember the story. Um, David says, well, this is easy. We'll call Uriah home. He'll be wanting to go in and sleep with his wife. He'll do that, and then it's all good. You know, He'll it, it, come back a year and a half from now with a baby, and oh, yeah, I remember when, you know, all that stuff. But Uriah was like, I just can't be uh, celebrating and doing this while uh, my colleagues are out in the field. Hello, come on in. Hey, sir. Oh, I didn't mean to interrupt you guys. My mother was a uh, lifelight at the Duke Hospital. Oh she man! Had a stroke. I'm fixing to be on the side of the road. My gas lights on. Can yeah. anyone help me with just a little bit of gas to get me going in that direction? Yeah. Anybody have time just, to just just to the... give me? Someone else can help me along the way. Just... well, what we'll do is, are, are you able to go up to the medium gas station? You two want to go together? Sure. Okay. Can you get your car up to this gas station, Yes, okay. sir. Okay. Great. I sure appreciate it. Hey, hey, I interrupt you. No, no, we're... I just, I'll pass like 30 people when I can. <laughs> you came to the right place. I, I'm about to be on the side of the road. Yeah, let's go. let's get you. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Tell me nothing over the phone. It's that HIPAA policy. Yeah, and what's her name? Danny, Danny Chan. Okay, we'll pray for Danny. She's at the hospital now. No, my mother's Joanne Willard. Your mother's Joanne, okay. Yes, sir. Okay, all right. pray for her, please. All right, yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. all righty. Well, praise the Lord. Uh, you never know, do you? <laughs> All right. Well, let's pray. Um, Lord, we pray for Danny there, Lord God, and we pray that it's Gary. And as uh, Caleb, uh, help him out, we pray that that will go well. Uh, and Lord, that uh, in addition to filling up his gas tank, Lord, they'd be able to encourage him now spiritually, and we pray for Joanne, his mama, Lord God, that you'd meet every need there uh, and uh, settle his heart, heal her, and keep on working in their family's life. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. All right. Well, you never know what's going to happen on a Sunday night, do you? (laughs) Oh, amen. Um, So... uh, yeah, so anyway, uh, David decides to cover the thing up. And, you know, isn't that the way it goes with sin? Sin will take you further than you want to go, cost you more than you were willing to pay, keep you longer than you were willing to stay, and just have tons of consequences. Uh, we wish David had repented at the adultery level, perhaps, uh, uh, you know. But instead, he basically sent her husband to fight nearest to the front where he would die. He had to have General Joab, a very complicated man himself, complicit in that. Um, And later when Joab reports, uh, you know, David's mad because why are you letting these, why do you have troops lost so, close to the front why didn't you pull him back and he said well uh the man uriah was also there and david held his peace you know so this is this wickedness you know this wickedness um and um david uh was not repenting who knows how far the cover-up would have gone and in chapter 12 of course, Nathan the prophet's wonderful confrontation. He knew David, if he'd gone in and and confronted him directly, David would have shouted and hollered and yelled back at him and maybe had his head, right, as the king to keep the cover-up going. Instead, he sits him down and tells him a little story. As we've alluded to, you know, a man in your kingdom has a thousand sheep and his uh, neighbor only had one. And when he wanted to feed uh, somebody coming through, he took the man's sheep rather than his own, leaving the man with none. And David was outraged and said, if that's happened, that person needs to die. And he said, you are the man. And he told the story. You have you know, multiple wives. You're the king. You could have any young maiden in the kingdom you want who's not betrothed and married. Uh, and instead you took another man's wife. And it's very interesting, even in the Matthew genealogy, she's called the wife of Uriah, uh, you know, um, because of that, how it should have been. But God is gracious, and we get Psalm 51 here, and then we also realize that um, Solomon winds up being another child after David and Bathsheba do marry. But It is really encouraging when we read of how David got it, that he had sinned, and he goes to God for forgiveness and love. I like to say that 1 John 1, 9 uh, is a great New Testament verse that goes along with Psalm 51. You know, it says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I've often pointed out, and you may have heard me do it, that... um, You know, thank God when we've sinned that God forgives us, not on the basis of who we are, because we're unfaithful, we're unjust. He forgives us based on a promise He's made to Himself to be faithful and just to those who ask Him. Uh, for forgiveness uh, in humility and brokenness and repentance. Well, verse 1, David says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgression. So there's that 1 John 1 9. David asked for God to deal with his sin based on God's own faithful and loving nature, not on his own sinful nature. He knows if his sin is going to be properly dealt with, it must be a God thing. He's guilty. Uh, the penalty is death. Um, and that was true in Israel. David's the king, and the penalty for adultery was stoning to death for Bathsheba and for David, you know. Uh, but they didn't exercise that on the king. Other kings, it would have been no big deal. That's just what they do. The king's around Israel, but Israel's supposed to act differently. So David says, basically, God, uh, if I'm going to keep on living, you've got to deal with this as you alone can do. Well, verse 2, notice his guilt. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So the guilt is overwhelming, and David asked to be washed of it. And I wrote here that guilt is a great gift from God. Do you remember when you came to Christ? Do you remember the first time after coming to Christ, Uh, that um, uh, you sinned and the Holy Spirit convicted you about it. I've I've said it before, but my own uh, baptism was two weeks after I became a Christian. And I was working at the Regency movie theater. I was a senior in high school. It was one of those dollar theaters, you know. And our practice had been you know, so this was true my junior and senior year of high school, our practice would be that after the movies were done, uh, we would, um, you know, just stay and party, you know, or go to somebody's house and party. And so that's what my life had been about before coming to Christ. You know, one of the things I did in addition to playing soccer and going to school and stuff was partying with my Regency movie theater coworkers and stuff. Well, I became a Christian and knew I wasn't supposed to do that, you know, but uh, a girl was home on Winter break, Christmas break, she was home from... She was a freshman at the University of North Carolina. And um, I was a senior in high school, and this girl was cute. And when everybody was going to the party, she said... She looked at me and batted those eyes, and she said, It's okay, Danny, I'm a Christian, too. And it was as if Satan was using her in that moment, you know, to lead me into temptation. I was a pretty willing participant, you know. So I went with them and did that. But that was a Saturday night. The next night was my baptism, was a Sunday night. And so when I, I went and got baptized, and when I came up out of that water, I actually felt something I had never felt before about any sin that I can remember. I, I never remember feeling guilt and just like, oh, what have I done? My, my, my Lord, what have I done? Uh, and um, now, that was the last time that Saturday night that I ever, ever got drunk and, and never wanted to since then, you know. Um, and uh, because, among other things, I don't want to feel that guilt again. You know, I don't want to have my conscience stricken like that again. So guilt can be a great gift from God. And um, I had felt hangovers before, but I had not felt guilt like that. Guilt is a great gift of God to his people. Cleanse me from my sin. It's a great thing to be washed and to be cleansed. Well, in verse 3, he says, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. What I like about this is David calls sin what it was. It was rebellion. So there's your fill in the the blank, the word rebellion. His conscience won't let him forget it. It's always before him. And you've heard me say perhaps, but I like the statement, We really can't be forgiven of sin we haven't repented of. Um, So to be forgiven, uh, 1 John 1, 9 says we need to confess our sin, and the word confess means to say the same thing about. So we start by saying your word calls it sin, I'm calling it what you call it. Uh, and then we change our mind in repentance, we confess it as sin, we say the same thing God does, and then we turn from it to Christ for his forgiveness. But if we start by saying, I've got a new set of things I call sin, Lord, and don't call sin like the people around me. My culture doesn't call, let's say, shacking up culture doesn't call that sin so it's okay now it's Lord you're old fashioned you don't know about today and God says no no sex is a great gift within marriage for a husband and wife anything else is sin including this concept of living together and, you know, having premarital relations without the commitment, the covenant to marry, and stuff like that. It is sin that needs to be repented of. We've got to say the same thing about it, or by definition, we can't be forgiven just because we want to have a different way of taking things in our day. Until we agree with God that what he calls sin is sin, we are far from restoration. We're just really fooling ourselves. Verse 4. Boy, he tightens it up now. Look at this. He says, against you... You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. This verse is so intriguing to me. remember when I was a young youth pastor. um, We had this uh, practice of bringing the Sunday school classes together and looking at the over all section together, and then they break into discussion groups: seventh, eighth grade girls, seventh, eighth grade boys, ninth and tenth, ninth and tenth, eleventh, twelfth. Six classes were all together at the beginning, and I was over that as part of my youth, early youth pastor responsibilities. And a dear lady kind of put me on the spot, um, you know she read this passage and she read this verse, against you, you only have I sinned, and say, Danny, explain why God had, David had sinned against God but not against Bathsheba and Uriah. And I said, well, he had sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah. You know, um, So even though these words are used, we've gotta understand them in a way that doesn't minimize the actual pain he brought into the life of Bathsheba and Uriah through that. How had it go, fellas? Thank you for doing that. You got my card?
0: <laughs> did you get a receipt?
1: Oh, we got us some gas. That was okay. You go to McDonald's too, did you? <laughs> no. It only because we didn't think of it. Well, yeah, thank you guys for doing that. No, no uh, you know, uh, Sunday night is a. You never know what the Lord's going to do. So hopefully uh, uh, that will help him and help, uh, you know, hopefully his mom be okay. We prayed for uh, his mom. Uh, in here, but so we're on Psalm fifty-one, verse four. His name's Danny too. I heard that him, Danny, and looked just like me, and you know, we're tw- nearly, nearly twins. And uh, so, Danny, if you ever listen to this, we love you, brother. Hope your mom turned out all right with everything with that stroke. Okay, so um, we're in Psalm fifty-one, four, and and it says, "Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight." So. David had certainly sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, humanly speaking. And he had also sinned against the messenger that brought Bathsheba. Uh, He had sinned against Joab the general by putting him in that situation. He had sinned against the innocent soldiers who perished with Uriah. So help me out here. In what sense can he say that his sin was against God alone that he had sinned? Any thoughts on that? Against you, you alone have I sinned. Humanly speaking, he certainly had sinned against them, too. He had done them wrong. Uh, God set the standard. God set the standard. So now, now, now we've got uh, to ratchet it up. And I said this that day, too, uh, in there, you know, but I didn't want to minimize that we really can hurt others in horrible ways that we should never do. And uh, I, I wanted to make sure no youth in there uh, thought it's okay to really hurt somebody on earth and then say, well, God's going to forgive me or has forgiven me, et cetera. But... Uh, it's, it's, it's really coming back to thinking about the nature of what sin is, right? So when I was an atheist until I was 17 or so, what, was an, what does an atheist say? Over in Psalm 53, it's going to say in verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's such an important concept that it, the whole Psalm 53 is a repeat of Psalm 14, which says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Um, so at its most fundamental level, When you're an atheist, you say there is no God, so you're saying there's no heaven where God lives, there's no hell where he's gonna judge and send people to that have defied him, been rebels against him. So the Russian, Dostoevsky, he concluded, since there is, if there is no God, all things are permissible. You said the word standard, and you were hitting it right on the head, Brother Donnie, uh, because If there is no God, the concept of sin is meaningless. Do you you understand that? And David's words here come right to us from the Holy Spirit, making us grapple uh, with, because a lot of times when people have sinned against others, what they feel bad about is maybe, oh, I cheated on her and she broke up with me, you know. And so you're making it all about human relationships and what it's cost you. Oh, I lied and uh, I cheated on the test, the teacher caught me and I got an F, you know. We, We make it about earthly consequences. David said sin needs to be thought first and even foremost as a category of something that's because we are accountable to the God who created us and the God who has moral law for us. Um, So, if there is no God, then we really are living out an evolutionary nightmare. Not a dream, but a nightmare. Evolution teaches things get better, but they haven't gotten better. (laughs) You know, they're not evolving upward, they're degenerating downward because of human sin, depravity in our hearts, depravity in our choices. And so, If there is no God, then there would be no way to say – when the lion eats the wildebeest at the Serengeti, we don't call that sin because he's acting on instinct. And if there is no God, then – oh, now I'm thinking about all the heathen philosophies that have jumped off the page, right? Much learning drives us mad. I'm thinking about how one atheistic godless philosophy said, might makes right. If there is no God, we have a moral responsibility to make ourselves stronger, even at the expense of the weak. Nietzsche taught that. Darwin's evolution leads to that thinking. Like animals, we're just animals, not humans. Uh, Nietzsche said we have responsibilities to make ourselves better, even at the expense of the weak. Uh, many people applied that. Hitler ran with that in Germany. You know, we have a responsibility to rid ourselves of the weak blood in the world. You know, uh, and become stronger. So, if you're smarter than others, if you're more dominant than others, then it's your world, not theirs, and the sooner the weak get out of here, the better, right? So, uh, there are kings who have reigned that would never say what David said here. I'm a great man, I have the right to have whoever I want, even another man's wife. David realizes that he had done things wrong to others, but first and foremost, there's a theological understanding from David that he had sinned against God and God was the one who would, you know, judge him out of existence if he didn't repent before God. Does that make sense? Any thoughts or follow-up questions on that? Because if there is no God, technically there's no such thing as sin. And these are great verses to help reinforce that whenever you're talking about the consequences of a godless way of thinking about things and living. Anybody? Donnie? I would say God is very sensitive on how we treat each other. Yeah. That you can't worship, you can't bring a gift to the altar unless you reconcile. Them. Yeah, that's right. That's right. David, David may have read about uh, Abraham and Sarah when when uh, Abraham went into the kingdom and he told everybody that Sarah was his sister, and Abimelech was about to take her as another wife. Mm. God came to him in a dream, and he told Abimelech. He said, I kept you from sinning against me. Mm. Yeah. So if it was God, he'd be sinning against. And, uh, that's ultimately good. we answered to God. That's good, as that's good. That the, I mean, the ramifications would play out with you, Rod, and the rest of it. Yeah. ultimately, David had to answer to God. Well, ironically, this actually makes us ready to go back and ask others that we've uh, you know, sinned against to forgive us as well. Uh, because we acknowledge that uh, it's not the Serengeti. We don't live on the Serengeti. But we think about some of America's godless worldviews. Uh, Relativism is alive and well in America, and increasingly we hear one person say another, well, who are you to judge? Um, We think about the frightening lack of moral clarity after the October 7th terrorist attacks. Uh, and people trying to justify that Hamas had a right to brutally terrorize, rape, and behead, and kill, and all the things they did. No, they didn't, nobody believes that, that is centered on sin against God, you know. Uh, That can only happen in a uh, setting where, based on what others have done to you, you have a right to, if you can, to take vengeance into your own hands, and uh, you're not having a Godward view of that, even if you say you believe in Allah. So uh, you hear people say, that may be your truth, but it's not my truth. And it uh, allows for one person to think that they're a a godlike figure and take advantage of others. And certainly many kings did. David did not. David loves God. And so he's centering on his uh, confession here, his understanding of God. It's only as we acknowledge sin as first a problem between us and God that we can recognize how deeply we've hurt others. You know, many times a Christian in the early days of their salvation thinks, huh, I thought it was good, clean fun. What I didn't realize was it wasn't good, clean fun to that person that I went too far with and that person and that per- and, you know, all the different things that go through our mind and head or, oh, that was theft. Oh, that was lying. Oh, that was cheating. Oh, that was the, ki- you know, kind of uh, bullying that shouldn't happen, you know, all these different things when we align ourselves with God and His perfect uh, standard. Um, this statement, and this is what I was getting on with a youth that day, and, and, and the dear lady that, asked, that put me on the spot, this statement that David makes in verse 4 did not absolve David or us of the need to make what we can right with others. Um, Jesus, remember him? <laughs> First, go and make things right, and then come and bring your gift to the altar. <laughs> um, if you realize you've got a problem with somebody else, they 've got a problem with you. first go thing, make things right, and then bring your tithe. Preachers don't like to share that one very much because <laughs> people like to hold on to their stuff, <laughs> and uh, churches uh, like to benefit from their giving and stuff, but we need to get we need to uh, go right down the line with what the scripture says, chapter and verse. David didn't view the affair as an indiscretion, the right of kings, or the cover-up within his rights as kings. He's now able to look and say what, what God does about it. It was evil, it was wrong, it was sin against a holy God. So what all has David called sin so far? He's called it rebellion against God, he's called it evil against before God, and man, we still got some verses to go here. But verse five, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Um, Now, even though this is an intensely personal prayer, there's a lot of excellent theology in it, (laughs) and the two are not mutually exclusive. Hopefully, when you pray and I pray, we actually pray good theology, good thoughts about God rather than wrong thoughts about God. Uh, what What does David say he was even before he was born? Sinful. Sinful. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Now, if I remember right, David was the eighth child of Mr. and Mrs. Jesse. <laughs> so it's not as though this was a love child or something like that. You know, uh, my mom was catting around, you know, uh, down with the Philistines, and here I am, you know. Uh, David is making a profound insight here. He's not saying he was the child of adultery or fornication, right? He is saying that people are more than sinners by choice. What are we? We are sinners by choice nature. Uh, We inherit from Adam and Eve a sin nature. You know these guys that run around and try to catch other believers in Danville with gotcha moments and stuff like that. I remember one of them coming to the parking lot here and talking to me one time and uh, you know um, I wasn't gonna spend long in that conversation because I've heard about their secret cameras and other things like that you know and how they like to put those forward. Uh, But one of them denied the reality that we inherit a sin nature from our parents that leads to sin choices. He basically said we're born good, not we're born as sinners with a sinful nature that leads to sinful choices early on. And I said, "Thank you, sir, for saying that because what you've just revealed is that you're outside the bonds of 2000 years of what believers have always thought." You know, and so our problem is not over the issue of baptism. The problem is that uh, you are wrong on the very sin nature that we all inherit going back to Adam and Eve and that R- Book of Romans goes so much into saying that uh, we still possess, uh, you know, the sin nature early on in life leads to sin choices, and we need to be born again. Uh, we need to have a new nature to go along with that old nature. There will be a battle between the old and the new until we get to heaven, but um, God will win for those who believe, for those who he, who he gives the new birth to. So we are sinners not just by choice, we are sinners by nature, and early on, David is acknowledging here that that sin nature goes all the way back to when he was first conceived in his mother's womb, another sinner uh, was coming into the world. So uh, there's only one person that didn't have that sin nature uh, that's ever been born, and who's that? Jesus. The second Adam. So the first Adam and Eve sinned. When they started having children, the sin nature came into the gene pool. And our sin nature leads to sin choices. Jesus didn't have that sin nature. That was half the battle. The other half was he had to get through life without sinning. And he he never sinned, which is awesome. So that made him able to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we call that original sin, uh, So despite being created in the image and likeness of God, we come into the world with that sin nature pretty quickly. Our choices, uh, we add choices to our sin nature. So that's why we often say we're sinners by nature and by choice. We're totally depraved, not meaning that we do all the evil we could do, but meaning we're alienated from God, spiritually dead, until we're made alive by God's salvation, a salvation we're not inclined to seek in our natural man. So we need to be forgiven and cleansed. Verse 7, he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. So what's that about with the hyssop? Somebody tell me what hyssop was. I got some of it here for you, right? (laughs) Hyssop was used by priests in the Old Testament. It was a leafy plant that they would use to sprinkle water or blood on a person being cleansed from defilement. So they take this hyssop and dip it in, and then they'd sprinkle it out on people. Uh, when um, the people accepted the terms of the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from Sinai, uh, they said, all that the Lord says we will do. And he says, okay, this would be a good time to sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice on you because <laughs> I want you to go home and this one robe you're wearing today to have be sprinkled with blood so you'd understand that you've made a covenant with God to do what he says. Uh, and that happened, the Mosaic Law, was received by them. Uh, Leviticus 14.6 is a place we talk about uh, hyssop and the person being cleansed from defilement. What's especially encouraging is that David realized it was the Lord responsible for the cleansing, not the hyssop. So he's not relying on a form, a human priest here. He said, Lord, if you wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm almost afraid to mention the word snow. Uh, you know, um, because we are kind of looking towards spring now. Uh, I want a good snow, but we haven't had one yet. <laughs> um, but we recognize the beauty in the analogy here. There's just nothing like uh, looking out and seeing three, four, or more inches of snow, and just getting the sense of how beautiful it is, and how the Bible says, "Though our sins be as scarlet." They'll be washed white as snow when we reason with the Lord and accept what he's done for us. Um, in forgiveness, God washes, washes away sin. We'll look at verse 8. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Oh, for healing for broken bones. Um, and uh, David had not had his bones inside broken that we know of, uh, but certainly the words of Nathan hurt because Nathan reminded him that uh, he had sinned so wickedly against God. So David's acknowledging the confrontation by Nathan was a good thing. Well, let me think about verse 9 here. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Can you think of uh, what it might mean that David says to God, hide your face from my sins? Anybody have any thoughts on that? I had myself a little note here to turn over to Psalm 103. Anybody have a thought on that here? Kind of a judicial sense of it, huh? That um, God, uh, you can choose because of your overflow of righteousness that you have in and of yourself, your own character, you can choose to hear my confession and you can choose to not hold the sin against me the way it feels like it's being held against me now. And that's the great promise in confession, isn't it? That if we with a humble, broken heart do confess, God forgives. And I wrote Psalm 103, 12 here. I'll I'll start with verse 11. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him, those who revere Him. As far as the east is from the west, so has He removed our transgressions from us. Now, Psalm 103 is also a Psalm of David, one of the later Psalms of David in the Psalms. And so I think you combine that with what he says here in verse 9. David understood that God could, uh, upon his confession, truly hit the reset button for David. And we understand that, too. Uh, What's the great thing we say about the East and the West? They don't meet, do they? They just keep going and going. You set out on a journey from the east to discover uh, where God has hid your sins, (laughs) you'll never find them, right? There's a South Pole and a North Pole, but there's no East Pole or West Pole. You just keep circling the globe. And David uh, talks about that. Blot out my guilt. Now, this is the second time he's referred to guilt. And guilt really can be like a megaphone in our lives. Again, um, the lower motivations are fearing God, a sense of obligation, a sense of guilt, uh, the greater motivations are gratitude than faith, hope, and love, and we'll talk about that another time like I have in the past. But um, if guilt can keep us from doing something stupid and, and changing course after having done something stupid, then guilt is a great gift. And I mentioned my own story. I think you guys were out when I mentioned my own uh, uh, baptism. I was kind of hung over uh, from drinking the night before, but I was so guilty about it after being baptized uh, two weeks into salvation that I never have been drunk again, you know, never drank again. Um, verse 10, what a great prayer. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Makes me think of a song. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That's where it comes from. Uh, the word for create is the same word used in Genesis 1 to speak of God creating ex nihilo. That's Latin for out of nothing. It's the word bara. So in the beginning, God bara the heavens and the earth. And David says, Lord, here I am confessing my sin to you. Won't you out of nothing create a clean heart for me? Bara, I've got a filthy, won't you wash it? Filthy heart, mouth, won't you wash it? Won't you cleanse it? Won't you create a new heart here and put yourself in it? Uh, God, if I'm going to have a new heart, you have to create it out of nothing because I'm a mess. You ever been there? Uh, God, you've got to do as big a miracle as creation. It's the word bara, just like that. Uh, Some people wonder why we don't see more miracles today. Maybe it's because we don't understand what a miracle is. Um, Around the world, uh, a person got baptized every minute last year when you count up everybody around the world and what the stats are for God reaching people. The miracle of the new birth is happening all the time. And uh, praise the Lord for that. At Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved uh, on that day. 3,000 or more saved every hour around the world now. So it's very cool that uh, God um, uh, is continuing to work around the globe like that. And miracles are happening. And so God is indeed taking those who are dead and raising their spirits to life through the miracle of the new birth when people turn to Christ. Uh, Verse 11, do not banish me from your presence, do not cast me away from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Uh, You can tell a lot about a person by what they're concerned about losing after they sin. Oh, baby, please don't leave me. I, I didn't mean it. They don't want to lose their relationship there. Oh, don't take the kids. Oh, don't take the big flat screen, you know. Um, When King Saul sinned, he did lose the spirit. It was a different dispensation. It was the old covenant age. Um, And during those Old Testament days, the spirit didn't always stay. He came for a time, for a task, to get a job done. And then sometimes he left the presence. When King Saul sinned, what was he concerned about losing? His kingship, his kingdom. You might think David would pray, God, uh, can I still be king? Can I still get another presidential term? Can I do this? Can I do that? You know, despite my sin. Um, but uh, what's David concerned about losing? His precious relationship with the Lord, the power of the Spirit uh, being upon him. Um, now, Ephesians 1, this this Psalm 51 says that David says... Um, don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. And I've already said the Holy Spirit had been removed from Saul when um, Saul sinned. Um, Ephesians 1 says that um, having believed in Jesus, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, and that's your guarantee of your future inheritance. So how do we reconcile Psalm 51 saying that someone who believes in God like Saul or David can have the Holy Spirit taken away? And Ephesians 1, that says someone who believes in God now uh, cannot have the Holy Spirit. He's their guarantee of all that God's going to do in the future. Other verses say He indwells us, and it, it, they make sure do make it seem permanently. Uh, how do you uh, reconcile those two? When people ask you about that. You do run into people. I've run into them. Oh, yeah, you can lose the Spirit. Psalm 51 says you can, you know. And then they misinterpret Hebrews 6 that way, too. But that's another story. Um But uh, how do you reconcile, uh, you know, Old Testament verse Psalm 51 saying this, New Testament verse Ephesians 1 saying um, this, uh, you can lose the spirit, Psalm 51, David's worried about that, he's praying for it not to happen, he saw it happen to Saul over here in Ephesians 1, the spirit is your guarantee, Uh, he's inside you, he's your guarantee of your future inheritance. How do you reconcile those, uh, or do we just make them fight against each other for perpetuity? Mm. Star of the day for Caleb, that's great. Uh, Wherever you're at in the Scripture, there's at least, there's many simple rules. But one of them is, wherever you're reading in the Scripture, ask, where's the cross from here? Psalm 51, written in the Old Testament before Jesus came and did what the Messiah would do for sinners, Israel and beyond to the entire world. Ephesians 1, written after what Jesus did on the cross, he's already resurrected from the dead, he's up in heaven, and Ephesians 1 says this is the reality we now live in. And when you look at before the cross, after the cross, uh, there are some times you see the Holy Spirit, it, it was just different in those Old Testament days than it was now that Christ has come and the way it is for us in this church age that we live in. And... One way you can say it is just by writing in John 7, verses 37 through 39 there, because in John 7, it says that Jesus on the last day of the feast stood up and said, "'The one who believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within him.'" And the next verse, John says, verse 39, John 7, 39, he says, "'This he said about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in Jesus were later going to receive.'" The Spirit had not been given yet because Jesus had not been glorified yet. So what David was worried about enough to pray about it in Psalm 51, we learn from the prayer but we also understand that now that Christ has come, the son of David, and done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, we can grieve the Spirit, He can make us feel guilt as He works from the inside out with us, but uh, we cannot lose the Spirit uh, if, he, if we ever really have Him. Uh, which is pretty cool. Well, verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. I think we all pray that prayer sometimes when we're dry spiritually. You ever done that? Lord, I just, I don't feel the joy right now. Won't you restore to me that sense of joy when it was new? Uh, we all have to have those times where we just, sometimes we just run on fumes, don't we? This poor fellow that came in earlier, Danny, he, he was about to run out of gas and um, you know, uh, praise God that He fills our tank, you know, when we're running on fumes. Sometimes we're doing so much in our own strength. And I just want to say to those of you who are real busy doing many, many things, if it's been a while since you spent some meaningful time with the Lord, I imagine you're tired. Uh, And let me just encourage you to uh, get away with the Lord a little bit. Take a two-hour mini-retreat this uh, week sometime and just spend some time with the Lord. Uh, because to love the lord our god is the heartbeat of our mission if we had a lot of trees to sharp da- chop down and all we had was an axe what what should we do first sharpen the axe and there's a lot of believers swinging away with a dull axe uh, you know trying to get some work done and they're doing it in the flesh and they're frustrated God can do more in a millisecond than we can do with our combined lifetimes of frenetic activity. So first and foremost, uh, we want to seek his face. Restore to me the joy of your salvation uh, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Give me a willing spirit. uh, Give me a willing spirit, one of your translations might read. God may like yes men, but God loves yes Lord men. And I put here Isaiah 6 and just Isaiah's own humbling before the Lord uh, that led to him saying, you know, here am I, send me. For Isaiah, volunteerism flowed after knowledge of sin and redemption. He saw God. That made him realize in comparison to God he was such a sinner. David's having that happen in Psalm 51. He um, has this beautiful imagery of the angels bringing coals from the altar and searing his unclean lips, you know, and... And then he says, God, he hears God say, Who will go for him? And he says, Here, here am I, send me. You know, that, that spirit comes from that. Verse 13 Then, after I've had this encounter with you, after you've restored this joy, after you have given me this spirit, uh, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Uh, not before I have experienced you and ministered, but after. Then I will teach sinners your ways. Um, The difference between Satan and God when someone is battered because of their sin. Satan says, now that you've done that, you could never make a difference again, and he tries to sideline you. You know, oh, you're terrible, you're trash. And I've always just, uh, people say, well, how do you respond when Satan puts those feelings of unworthiness on you and says, uh, is whispering in your ear and yelling to God, you can't use Danny, he's a sinner, he's this, that, and the other. Well, I've always just started with agreeing with him. You know, yeah, that's who I am in my own strength. I'm that wretch. <laughs> but that's not the whole story. I'm in Christ, which means you're dealing with a 10. You're dealing with a child of God here, Satan. So take it up with my attorney. Uh, take it up with my advocate, uh, which is what 1 John 2.1 calls Jesus. I write these things to you this so that you won't sin, but if anybody sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Um, God says, now that you've confessed your sin and been restored, I've got future plans for you. And some of David's moments, even though there were consequences of his sin in his family the rest of the days, God did greatly use David, and uh, he had, uh, you know, God did use him mighty, which is cool. Verse 14, oh, here's the word guilt again. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. So here he is, acknowledging being responsible for Uriah and others' death. The guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Mm. Uh, There's that word again, guilt, specifically over Uriah and others' death. David looks forward to when he will enjoy singing again. Lord, give me this sense of deliverance so that my tongue will feel good when I sing victory in Jesus again, like we did this morning. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips. My mouth shall show forth your praise. So David looks forward to when he will testify again about what God's done in his heart and life. Verses 16 and 17, you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. And then this key, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. God knows, uh, David knows that God wants a broken, humble, dependent spirit from us. James said, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and what will God do? He will lift you up. James then said also, draw near to God, what will God do? He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded, saying some of the same things David does here. David understood that external worship means nothing without the inward reality. There were prescribed offerings they were supposed to bring in that Old Testament days. Uh, They were sometimes to bring lambs and sheep and goats and bulls and doves and other things and stuff like that, you know, and, and grain offerings and all the different things that kept the you know, uh you know that that when they were coming for sin and guilt offerings and different things like that, but the people got in the habit of going through the motions like sometimes we do, you know, oh, the Lord's Supper is coming up, uh okay, you know. No, it's supposed to be a, a signpost to us to say, huh, the Lord's Supper's coming up. I need to see, uh, get some time alone with God and consider whether there be any unpleasant way, any uh, sinful way in me that needs to change. I need to consider my relationships with others and see if I need to get any of those resolved before that time comes. So David says, you want a humble heart before you want anything else, a broken heart, a contrite heart. Uh, our problem is, and many of the people that we minister to, their problem is... They have a sense that they're broke, but they're not broken. And and we, we wind up talking to people, and sometimes it's the person in the mirror, that almost uh, has come to a lifelong resolution that they're just going to be broke. I won't be able to do anything ultimately about that addiction. I won't be able to stop doing this sin or that sin. And they've just kind of... Given in, and they say, Well, I hope God still forgives me and receives me, but I just, I could never stop that. They're broke, but they're not broken. And God says, I want to get you to that place of brokenness, that place of humility where um, real change can come. And we need to do that by working on the inside out and not just going through the motions. Any thoughts or comments before we get to these last two verses? Such good stuff. Verses 18 and 19, David realizes that what's happening in his heart will also benefit the entire nation. There really is nothing that we do in isolation. Um, When every Christian um, uh, in America when any individual, let me say it like this, when any individual Christian in America decides to come up with unhealthy compromises with sin that they have no intention of truly repenting of and truly being broken in and seeing God forgive them and change them in, when we stop fighting that battle, and it is a battle, it is a battle. I mean, this is sometimes a multiple-time-a-week-or-a-month kind of thing, fighting you know, for our effectiveness for the Lord. We, we start the fight just by resting in God's grace, uh, and then we take the things we know and apply them to the struggle in our lives. Sometimes, depending on the sin, it may not be much we can really have victory about it until we bring a brother or sister, same-sex brother or sister into the mix, and a brother confesses with a brother, a sister confesses with a sister. Uh, And says, "I need you to help me in this area to hold me accountable. Together, let's be uh, let's kind of have let's have the kind of accountability and avoid the kind of isolation that led to David's sin. You know, all those things that we're trying to accomplish by good small groups in Sunday school, but also in discipleship groups and other things where we grow together. Um, But um, if if we're ever going to see a revival in our churches and an awakening in our land," Uh, there's going to mean to need to be don't you love those domino pyramids where they 're built and then they just go down? we 're going to need to be in that domino chain, ourselves practicing what we preach, um, seeking god 's face, doing some of the things it says here. David prays that despite his sin for god 's glory, Zion will prosper. So in verse eighteen, he says, "Do good and your good pleasure to Zion." Build the walls of Jerusalem one broken heart at a time. (laughs) Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with the offerings. This whole system that you set up that's so awesome, God, help us get back to the internal that leads to the external. He knows it has not helped it to happen through his sin. You know, the reality is that, um, uh, you know, this is just the reality we live in. Uh, Every time we do the right thing for the Lord in faith, it's like we're building this beautiful wall, you know, brick by brick. And when we do the kind of thing David did with Bathsheba or with Uriah, um, it's almost like we've taken a sledgehammer and the entire walls come down at once. And David realizes if the wall's gonna be rebuilt, it's gotta be rebuilt one spiritual brick at a time. And it's gotta start with him as the king Uh, owning what he'd done wrong, modeling, seeking God's face, and restoring in all the different ways that he could. And so he did write by Bathsheba on the other side of this sin. Uriah was already dead. Um, He uh, married her, and of course uh, they lost the one baby, and then Solomon came after that who would build the temple. But David didn't really need to be the king but he knew Zion was the city of God and David wanted it to prosper despite his sin. And he had the kind of heart there that we have when we say, Lord, if I'm the problem, go ahead and take me to heaven, you know? <laughs> uh, if, if I'm the reason uh, revival's not coming, then uh, Lord, uh, change me out, you know? Uh, Lord, I want to be right with you personally and praying and being part of what you want to do to reach Danville, Pennsylvania, Caswell, Virginia, North Carolina, America, and the world for Christ. Let's pray.
0: Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today.